This is a UCD Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland podcast. My name is Dr Sinead McCann and I am a Public Engagement Officer at the UCD Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland for the project Prisoners, Medical Care and Entitlement to Health in England and Ireland, 1850-2000. For details about the centre, please go to our website at www.ucd.ie forward slash history forward slash chomi. To listen to other episodes from our archive, please visit the centre's iTunes page or our media website chomi.org. This episode is a recording from the one day event Inside Reform Prison Healthcare Campaigns Past and Present a policy workshop hosted by the Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland and held at the National Gallery of Ireland on the 2nd of June 2017. Inside Reform was a policy event organised by the Wellcome Trust Senior Investigator Award Prisoners Medical Care and Entitlement to Health in England and Ireland, 1850-2000. The co-principal investigators of this project are Associate Professor Catherine Cox, Director of the UCD Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland, and Professor Hilary Marland, Director of the Centre for the History of Medicine, University of Warwick. In this podcast, Dr Rachel Bennett, a postdoctoral research fellow at the Centre for the History of Medicine, University of Warwick, presents her paper called The Duchess of Bedford's 1919 Committee of Inquiry into Medical Care in Holloway Prison. Rachel is a research fellow on the Wellcome Trust Senior Investigator Award Project, Prisoners, Medical Care and Entitlement to Health in England and Ireland, 1850-2000. to Our second speaker is uh, Dr Rachel Bennett. Um, and Rachel is a research fellow on the Prisoners Medical Care and Type of Health project and she's based at the University of Warwick and her research strand is focused upon medical care in English and Irish women's prisons in particular and she's examining provisions for maternity care and childbirth in prison the distinct responses of women to the prison experience and perhaps most importantly for today the importance of women's reform groups and charitable organisations and ad- identifying and advocating for female prisoner health needs. And the title of our paper today is Identifying and Advocating for Women's Health, the Duchess of Bedford's 1919 Committee of Inquiry into Medical Care in Holloway Prison. Great. Thank you. So when it was opened in 1852, Holloway Prison accommodated both male and female prisoners. However, the closure of London's Newgate Prison in 1902 and the increasing pressure for prison space prompted the decision to make Holloway a female-only prison in 1903. It was reported that this decision also meant a broader aim of facilitating the absolute separation of the sexes. Holloway became the largest female prison in England but was quickly faced with overcrowding and a new wing had to be added in 1906. During the First World War, the prison witnessed shortages in provisions and in medical staff and in its wake, it became a site for inquiry and a subject for debate over healthcare in prisons. The inquiry of 1919 was, in part, born out of concerns that were being raised over the conditions of women received into the release homes from Holloway. Several cases were brought to the attention of the Prison Commission, where women had arrived with a venereal disease. This was further exacerbated by the fact that some of these women had actually been recorded to be free from venereal disease upon their release from the prison. 
which is perhaps reflective of the lack of any detailed physical medical examination, but also highlights the issues prisons such as Holloway faced in completing the treatment of these women who were often serving very, very short sentences. Other cases highlighted the lack of available sanitary care provisions and the verminous conditions of prisoners and their clothing. In addition, the inquiry occurred at a time when cases of poor medical treatment, some of which had resulted in the death of prisoners, increased the public anxiety over conditions in Holloway, especially in the newspapers. Concerns had also been raised to the Prison Commission and the Secretary of State's office by groups including the Women's Freedom League, which was a group founded in 1907, which included members of the Women's Social and Political Union, who campaigned for women's suffrage, and later for sexual equality. When writing to the Governor of Holloway to inform him of the impending inquiry, Sir Evelyn Ruggles Bryce, who was the Chairman of the Prison Commission at the time, stated that the Commission wanted the independent opinion of the Lady Visitors to address this criticism. He personally wrote to Adeline Mary Russell, the Duchess of Bedford, in February of 1919 to ask her to chair this Commission of Inquiry into conditions in Holloway. There were several reasons why the Duchess of Bedford was chosen to undertake this inquiry. She was a well-known philanthropist and between the late 19th and early 20th century was involved in several campaigns aimed at the moral and occupational improvement of women's lives, some of which are detailed on the slide there so I won't go into them all. Um, in addition, she had recently frequently consulted with Ruggles Bryce on the subject of women in prison. In the late 1890s, she regularly visited Aylesbury, which had become a female-only prison in 1890, and she worked to place women into homes upon their release and to help them gain employment. In 1900, she became the president of the National Lady Visitors Association. The Lady Visitors visited women in prison and sought to educate them and to help them to prepare for life after their imprisonment. A newspaper article in 1898 commented that the Duchess was perhaps the, the woman who knows most about the women convicts in English prisons. In 1913, a further article commented that to be a Lady Visitor required good judgment and discrimination of character and that the Duchess of Bedford was perhaps best equipped to judge on how a prison ought to be organised. The committee commenced their inquiry on the 7th of March 1919. It was comprised entirely of women, including two women who were also lady visitors, a representative of the Prison Reform Committee, and Dr Ada Whitlock, who was a lady inspector of the Reformatory and Industrial School Department. It appears from her correspondence with Ruggles Bryce that the Duchess personally chose these members. The committee gathered their evidence through observing practices in the prison, questioning staff, including the governor and the prison doctors, about specific cases and practices, and they recorded some of their statements in the completed report. Their findings were then printed in a 66-page document that was submitted to the consideration of the prison commissioners. In conducting the inquiry, the committee examined several aspects of medical care in the prison, including sanitary conditions, provisions for childbirth and maternity care, and the treatment of venereal disease amongst remand and convict prisoners. To illustrate their findings further, they provided detailed case studies of recent examples of poor or inadequate medical care in the prison. This approach was effective in communicating the conditions in Holloway for two key reasons. First, it allowed the committee to identify and advocate specifically for the health needs of women. Second, in utilising case studies, some of which had been reported upon in the newspapers, they were able to demonstrate the direct effects of inadequate medical care, but were also able to more clearly communicate the changes they believed needed to be made. Although each strand of the inquiry, which I've detailed on the slide, was focused upon identifying the specific health needs of women, 
a substantial part of the inquiry, and the main section I want to focus on in this paper examines several aspects of the experiences of pregnancy in the prison. So although it was difficult to give exact figures on the number of pregnancy cases to pass through the prison, in the year immediately preceding the inquiry, there were an estimated 110 remand cases and 120 convict prisoners found to be pregnant or who had been pregnant during their incarceration. However, the committee recognised the difficulty in gaining exact figures as many women were in the early stages of pregnancy and were only serving short sentences. Others may have deliberately concealed their pregnancy and the committee pointed to the lack of any detailed physical examination. Indeed, this was something they particularly highlighted. Prisoners would wait in separate cells upon their reception for the doctor's examination. He would examine their heads, use a stethoscope to listen to their heart and lungs, but would only expose the upper part of the chest. The hands and arms would also be examined for signs of scabies. The doctor could refer prisoners to the hospital for further examination, but if he did not, they would then progress on and eventually to their cells. There were several prisoner accounts dating between the late 19th and the mid-20th century, reinforcing this finding regarding the brief and often perfunctory nature of medical examinations upon entry into women's prisons. The inquiry also found that this had allowed cases of pregnancy to go undetected. For example, they particularly highlighted the case of Phyllis Ward, who had been imprisoned in Holloway for one month between January and February of 1919. She herself had asked the doctor if she was pregnant, and after only a very brief examination, he stated that she was not. However, shortly after her release into a remand home, she had to be transferred to Marylebone Infirmary, where she gave birth to a stillborn child in March. The committee had cor corresponded with the medical superintendent at the infirmary, who stated to them that there were obvious signs of pregnancy that should not have been missed. The committee used this case to strongly recommend that, if pregnancy was even suspected, the woman should be referred to a lady doctor for more thorough examination. The committee found that pregnant prisoners were accommodated in prison cells located on the A2 and B2 observation landings. However, these landings also accommodated cases of suspected mental illness, epilepsy and tubercular diseases. The committee found that there was a lack of sufficient beds and cases of advanced pregnancy were accommodated in other wards of the hospital. They also made special note of the fact that prisoners were not always sent to the hospital until they were believed to be full term, and therefore there are several instances where labour occurred in the normal prison cells. When Mia McCruick was placed on the B2 landing, she was six and a half months pregnant. One night, she felt pain, and as she could not reach the bell in her cell, which was there to call for help, she alerted the attention of the prisoner in the next cell, who rang her bell instead. However, both calls were not answered, and May gave birth to her premature child alone in her cell. The child died, and May was not discovered until the following morning. The committee used this case to state that no cases of advanced pregnancy should be isolated in a cell. They added that the current remand hospital should have been made into a maternity ward, wherein cell doors would be replaced by curtains for better observation. However, when addressing the committee's recommendations, Ruggles Bryce stated that this would not be possible, as it would seriously conflict with the important principle that there should be absolute segregation of convicted and remand cases. In practice, this was not always the case anyway, as the committee had already highlighted instances where, due to a lack of space in the remand side of the hospital, women would be transferred into the convict side of the hospital for their confinement. But it certainly does demonstrate how punitive considerations impacted upon medical care. A final aspect of the committee's inquiry that I want to briefly talk about 
is their findings and recommendations related to the medical staff in the prison, as they stated that this was an area that needed to be urgently addressed. The medical staff in Holloway at the time of the inquiry consisted of Dr Patton, who was the governor, two male doctors and a lady doctor who had recently been appointed amidst wider debates over the examination of women for venereal disease and some women refusing to be examined by a male doctor. The nursing was done by older and more experienced wardresses who had considerable experience with sickness, but crucially they were not trained nurses. They were then assisted by younger wardresses who served in turn on hospital duty, but again were inexperienced and stated that they did not care for this additional responsibility as it did not come with any additional benefits for them, namely in terms of pay. There was only one certified midwife, but she had been away on long-term sick leave and by the time of the inquiry she had resigned and had not been replaced. At the time of the inquiry, there were about 20 cases of pregnancy in the hospital alone, including four cases complicated by hemorrhaging, three cases complicated by the mothers also having a venereal disease, one woman had epilepsy, and three were under observation for mental illness. So we can see here that the committee were highlighting the point that specialised medical treatment was even more essential in these cases. Again, they used a case study that was being heavily reported upon in the newspapers to further illustrate the dangers of a lack of specially trained medical staff, especially in cases of pregnancy and childbirth. 17-year-old Ellen Sullivan was a remand prisoner in Holloway. She was around six and a half months pregnant when she began violently vomiting and was confined to a hospital cell. On the night of the 17th of January 1919, she was attended to by a young and inexperienced wardress who was also on duty and had to patrol the two floors of the hospital. Through the night, Ellen was found to have given birth to her child who had fallen onto the cell floor and the umbilical cord had been ruptured by the fall. When the officer discovered this, she immediately sent for an outside midwife and the doctor, but the child had died before they arrived. The doctor and the midwife examined Ellen and found her condition was satisfactory and they left her once again in the care of the hospital staff who, again, were not trained nurses. Throughout the following day, Ellen's condition worsened and she also died. Her death was found to have been caused by traces of diabetes and due to her premature confinement. The case attracted a lot of newspaper coverage and the Women's Freedom League wrote to the Home Secretary calling for him to receive a deputation from them regarding the case. However, the Home Secretary, in consultation with the coroner, answered that the deaths of the mother and the child were due to natural causes and stated that the prison had in no way affected her health injuriously. The committee considered the lack of trained nursing, trained nursing for prisoners to be a serious defect in the prison administration and claimed that it was unfair to the doctors and the hospital staff, but crucially they made the point that it was unfair to the prisoners who, whatever their crimes, were entitled to proper care whilst in the charge of the state. Another issue raised by the inquiry was their highlighting of the distinct rights of unborn infants to healthcare and the dangers posed to them by the inadequate provisions afforded to their mothers. This issue was to become more heavily debated upon in the 1920s when there were petitions sent to the Secretary of State asking him to remove pregnant women to outside hospitals for, their, for the births of their infants. These petitions were predominantly driven by a prisoner's family, but there are a couple where they received thousands of signatures in the local area. Although the petitions often pointed to the stigma to the child of being born in prison, they do demonstrate how health-centred issues could speak to wider questions over the social ramifications of the prison. There were several recommendations made by the committee, but I will only briefly detail some of them here. 
One of the major administrative overhauls to come from the inquiry was related to the staffing of the prison. The Prison Commission had broached the subject of nursing staff in Holloway to the Treasury in October 1914, but owing to the wartime circumstances, consideration of the matter had been postponed. However, the inquiry of 1919 provided a renewed impetus on this matter. More definitive distinctions were made between medical and disciplinary staff, and efforts were made to create a more definitive chain of responsibility. The hospital staff would now include two nurses with a certified diploma from the Central Midwives Board, and there would also be nurses employed with experience in treating venereal disease and mental illness. These members of staff had been taken on by June of 1919. In addition, with a view to encouraging members of the female prison staff to undergo the necessary outside training to acquire the certificate of the Board of Midwives, the Commission proposed that a fee of 10 shillings and six should be paid in each midwifery case attended to by a prison officer who held this qualification. The Treasury again sanctioned this proposal in October of 1919. Following the inquiry, Ruggles Bryce stated that the Prison Commission were to appoint a lady superintendent to oversee the daily running of the prison, including managing the staff. Although she would still be answerable to the male governor, this move can be situated within the wider debates in the early 20th century over the appointment of women to positions of greater responsibility in the management of women's prisons. So just to wrap up, identifying and advocating for the specific needs of women in the prison has a history stretching further back than the early 20th century. However, the inquiry of 1919 specifically addressed the issue of medical care in female prisons. Important in itself, it also spoke to and provided a renewed rigour to wider, longer-term health centre debates. In utilising case studies that highlight specific concerns, the inquiry advocated for changes in a direct rather than in an abstract way. This approach was particularly effective in changing policy related to the staffing of the prison. The inquiry offered an important emphasis of the entitlements of all prisoners to health, regardless of their crimes or their status as remand or convict prisoners. It spoke to the longer term and still ongoing issue that incarceration itself was the punishment and thus the state had the responsibility to maintain a prisoner's physical and mental health. This narrative was to become further developed over the course of the 20th century and fed into arguments regarding babies born in prison. So some of the issues raised long outlived the 1919 inquiry and continue to endure today, almost a century later, especially those related to the pregnancy experience in prison. For example, in March 2016, the UK organisation Birth Companions released a birth charter calling for a prison service order for women in the perinatal period. So the inquiry of 1919 certainly provides a contextual past to this and some of the other issues, questions and experiences reform groups and prison staff continue to face today and can perhaps provide one example of how the need for change could be effectively communicated and to some extent achieved. Thank you. Thank you.